Hello and welcome to In Lockdown With, a podcast where I, playwright Kieran Fitzgerald, chats to emerging, established and experienced artists in the fields of theatre, film, television, dance and drama, from Wales and beyond, to find out more about their careers and to see how they've been coping during the coronavirus pandemic. Expect laughs, gossip, and an insight into the careers of some of Wales's best-known creatives. If you enjoy this podcast, please like and subscribe on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Thank you. Hello and welcome to this episode of the In Lockdown With podcast with me, Kieran Fitzgerald. Today my guest is Emily Garside. Hi Emily, how's things? Hiya, I'm good, thank you, and thank you for having me. How are you? How's the lockdown been for you? Um, it's been okay. I mean, it's weird all of us isn't it and mm. kind of um i feel oddly busy even though i haven't got like a real job to go to at the minute so that's good i guess <laughs> yeah it's just for me it's been about just trying to keep busy trying to have something to do something to focus on i don't know whether that's been the same for you Oh, totally. Like, I just feel like every time I finish one thing, I find myself something else to start working on yeah. just to have something to keep me busy and, and focus on that isn't reading the news or, like, scrolling through Twitter, cause because that's not happening to anyone right now. You can get wrapped up in it and you can go down rabbit holes and that's not helpful to anyone, really, I don't think. Like... No, exactly. And I just think having things to focus on, even if it's not something that's going to become like a long-term project just helps us all get through I think. Definitely. Uh, now I wanted to start where I, I kind of always start these podcasts really and to ask you how did you first get interested in theatre? Um, that's always such a good question for me because I feel like I came to it really late in the game. Um, I didn't I didn't go to youth theatre, I didn't do anything like that as a kid. Um, I started getting interested in going to the theatre in like my late teens, so like when I was 17, right. 18, maybe a little bit younger. Um, and then sort of from there it grew rather than being like practically involved in theatre. Um, again, like at uni I didn't really, you know, didn't perform. I did perform in Gilbert and Sullivan shows, which is really shameful to admit, but um, I was more of a singer. Um, that's what I've always done. So yeah. it kind of a sort of slow pulling together of those two worlds I guess um, and then eventually I decided that I wanted to sort of be more involved in theatre and kind of got much more interested in making it when I was sort of in the middle of my undergrad degree and then mm. I did my master's in sort of theatre stuff and then it sort of spiralled from there. What did you do your undergrad in? Um, I did history with American and Canadian studies right. for my undergrad. <laughs> Uh, and was that a path that you kind of wanted to, to go down at that point? Um, I, there was two reasons behind it. One, at 17 I didn't know what I wanted to do, like loads of us. Um, and I just sort of picked the thing I was good at, which was history. I was yeah. really good at English and history. 
And at the time, I think I was just a little bit better at history, so I thought I'll get better grades if I if I do that for my degree. Yeah. Um, but the American Canadian Studies thing, they there's like three or four degree programs in the UK where you can do a year abroad as part of that program. Mm-hmm. And I sort of wanted to do a gap year without doing a gap year, if that makes sense. So in doing that degree, I got yeah. to spend a year studying abroad, um, and that sort of swung it for me in terms of I was going to do history anyway that seemed like an interesting thing to add on to it. So I did a little bit of theatre with that as well, because American Studies is this weird degree where you do a bit of film studies, a bit of history, a bit of politics, a bit of literature, like it's a real like mashup of things. Um, And then out of that idea year in Montreal, which is where I did a lot of theatre for the first time as well. So I think it was like a happy set of accidents that Mm. in not knowing what to do at 17, I ended up doing the right thing eventually. Montreal, is that in Quebec, so was that mainly French-speaking? It is, so, um, yeah, it's it's Quebec, so it's French-speaking Canada to a degree. Um, McGill, where I went to uni, mm. there is an English university, so we did all our courses in English. Um, I, because this was like going back a few years, right, um, yeah. I had to like figure out a place to live and everything without the internet as we know it now, shall we say, um, I ended up moving into like the French neighborhood in there. And okay. my French was not great when I moved there. It was like GCSE French. So that was a fun time. Um, but yeah, it's like this weird, it's a bit like Wales in a way that it's very yeah. bilingual. It's very split politically in terms of the language as well, which is super interesting. Um, so I just improved my bad French for a year by living in neighborhood and what what did you find interesting about like the culture the, the arts culture of montreal quebec that area it's really fascinating in that um it reminds me a lot of home in particularly montreal because it's a university town it's like a mid-sized city so it feels quite european in some ways mm-hmm. as well there's a lot of european influences there and all that um but there's such a language divide which has got you know more and more over the years mm. but you literally knew from which area you were in which language you should be speaking which is really fascinating right. so like the plateau where i lived was french speaking downtown you could speak in either language and then the other side of the city was more the english side um, and equally with theater it's quite similar to welsh theater in that it's very divided into the french language theater and the english language theater so even right. going to shows like i would happily go to watch a french show because you know if there's subtitles or whatever I can still follow the same way I do in Wales um, but the community felt very divided there at the time I don't know what it's like now um, but it was very interesting to sort of learn some theatre stuff in that world um, and learn actually theatre in like a completely different culture as well because obviously all the sort of classes I took all the sort of um, productions I was in and, and work like that yeah. were from a completely different culture to what I was used to which was a really good way to start I think almost I suppose it gave you a wider kind of range of, of theatre that you knew of, a wide range of text that you became familiar with, which brought yeah, exactly. your horizons in that fact. Yeah, exactly that. And whether it was the stuff I did like in the university, and obviously they're teaching from a North American point of view, so the, the things that they, you know, the plays that they teach you are, are completely different to maybe what we learn. Um, and then I did loads of like and performance classes outside of uni which again came from a completely different like set of um i guess training a background and all of that kind of stuff like things like clowning is really big in montreal right. so, like that plays into it and, and all of those weird things um i didn't i decided not to become a performer after that year 
for that reason. <laughs> and like, finishing that degree, how did you feel about what you wanted to do? Did you kind of know what your next step was after that? Um, not really. So after I, or when I was in Montreal, I met someone who did the master's programme that I eventually went to do. Right. Um, and she'd done it the other way around. So she was from Montreal and she'd come to London to do her master's. And she did it at, um, at RADA, but with King's College. So it's a combination of a traditional English literature masters with some practical theatre stuff um mm. I kind of call it a bit of a dramaturgy masters in terms of what they teach you and so my friend told me about this when I lived there and I was like oh well, I've got a year left of my degree I'll have a look into that when I go home and I ended up doing that masters program more because I just wanted to convert what I'd done more over to theatre um, yeah. I didn't really know what I was going to do with it after that but I just sort of wanted to like pull myself into that world a little bit um which I think I did um, and then didn't as well because it was very London centric and then I left London afterwards so it was a bit kind of strange kind of going well what next did you kind of feel that you didn't fit into that world a bit um, a little bit it was um I always look back at it and go oh if I if I'd done it several years later I possibly would have had the confidence to make more of it if that makes sense yeah. so kind of there were people who were older than me and who'd been doing other things, you know, either working in the industry or doing other things who I think were much better at using like the networking side of it or, you know, using what we were learning to link to what they were going to do after. And I was still a bit, maybe a bit too young to take advantage of that and yeah. didn't know what I was doing. So I think if I'd done it later, I possibly would have made more of it and maybe stayed in London longer as well. Mm. And, and is, is London still somewhere you think that maybe you want to be in the future or do you see yourself as someone who wants to be based in Wales? And um, wants I've, I've gone back and forth so many times on this and I kind of, I always sort of go for the right job or the right opportunity I might move back full time to London um, but equally I think particularly this year as well looking at like 2020 and going yeah. I'm so glad I was home in Wales when this all happened yeah. and I wasn't, you know, stuck in a tiny flat in London with nowhere to move and all of that kind of stuff. So yeah. I think as well as I've got older, like quality of life and where I live has become more important. So maybe yeah. London will just be somewhere I go to work occasionally rather than move back to. Yeah. And um, I'd like to talk about the Alum theatre you were part of the Young Artists Festival in 2016. Um, how was how that in terms of your development as a playwright? Because on the other Young Artists Festival you get, or at least when I did it, you get three days to write a ten minute piece and it's very intense, or at least I found it a very intense experience. It was definitely a lot, that's for sure. Mm. Um, I've since become a lot more used to doing that. And it's a weird, actually, it's a weird thing. So either side of that, I've done similar things. So um, in Canada, I used to do 20 or 40-hour films because a lot of film students were sort of working yeah. on them. Um, and since then, I've worked on other 48-hour type um, theatre festivals, so I've got more used to it now. <laughs> um, I think for me, the only... Well, the main thing about The Other Room was feeling a little bit like 
I was finally being accepted as a playwright in mm. Cardiff, which I hadn't felt like at all before that. Right. Because I'd been doing other things for a while. I've been an academic, I've been doing my PhD, all those things. Um, I really felt like the theatre community didn't want me to a degree, or they didn't see me as part of them. So being accepted onto that really did make me feel like, oh, I might be allowed in a little bit. Yeah. Um, but equally, I spent a lot of time in that feeling like I didn't belong as well because I felt like a bit of an outsider to the world because loads of people who do that had either trained together or they've made work together before and I felt like a little bit of an outsider for it um, because that was I think quite early on in my getting reintegrated into the theatre community mm. in Cardiff um, but it was a fantastic experience as well to like have to make something and have to write something yeah. that fast. Uh, um... You talk about being on the outside of it and being on the fringes. Did you, did you find that the theatre community in Cardiff generally is quite open and welcoming or, or, or for you as a writer and you've... I, I'm not really sure how to word this, but like, how, how easy or difficult would you say it's been for people to accept? you as a writer or see you as a playwright because of the academic stuff? Um, I'll be really honest and say it's been really difficult and I still don't feel like I'm part of that world and maybe I never will. Um, I think there's a lot of, I also feel like I'm too old. I feel like (laughs) there's everyone who's like part of the fringe scene in Cardiff currently. Um, trained together very recently and they're already part of a little group and Mm. I'm somewhere on the outside I've kind of learned that as a writer that's okay as well like I don't need to be in the middle of it all I don't need to be like drinking up porters every week (laughs) when we're still allowed to go drinking up porters Um, and that's okay Um, and I've just sort of gradually learned to like accept where I fit into that so some people see me as a theatre critic and nothing else and I quite enjoy proving them wrong when I can do other things um and it's just I think I've just sort of got used to the fact of as a writer I might just have to stay on the outside a little bit and that's kind of okay as well and it's not to say that individually as people that everyone isn't lovely because it's a really friendly community Mm. in that sense you know um, one of the things I've really missed this year is going to like opening nights and knowing that I'll see a bunch of people that I know and I can have a chat with and all of that. Yeah. Um, it's more just feeling like, oh, people think that you, you do something else over there and you're not part of what they're doing mm. over this side and stuff. So it's a weird place to be, but it's also okay in that everyone in Cardiff is genuinely really nice and welcoming as yeah. a person and that's really what matters more, I think. Do you still want to be seen as a playwright, as someone who who wants to make work and wants to have work on? Um, I think so. I've had like a major like identity crisis over 2020, which I think loads of us have. Oh God, like what am I doing anymore? Um, I think on one hand, it's I've rediscovered a love of my academic work mm-hmm. and that kind of writing. But also, like everyone, I'm questioning like what the future of theatre looks like. Yeah. Um, all that said, I'm also having conversations about plans for productions when we can get back to the real world well, and stuff like that. Thing. So I clearly haven't, you know, abandoned that part of my life. I'm just, go- I think because it's been so long now without it, mm. I'm kind of going, what, what does it even mean anymore? 
And there's a bit in your brain, or in my brain anyway, that doubts, oh, is it ever going to come back? Are we ever going to be in the theatre again watching a play? And, and that can drive you mad, or it does, to me anyway, to have that uncertainty about what's going to happen when we come out of all of this. Yeah, totally. And it's that thing of, I've really struggled to write new work, like new play kind of work because I just have this thing in the back of my head going but what almost what's the point which is a terrible thing to think mm. but also kind of well who knows what it's going to look like I mean I'm lucky that I had a couple of things that I was working on before all this happened and I've been okay sort of plodding along with them but in case in the case of like doing anything new I just sort of find myself shrugging a bit and going oh but I don't know when that's going to be a reality mm. so why bother in, a, you know, really yeah. in my darker moments? <laughs> I, I think a lot of people feel like that. Um, but you wrote um, a play called Don't Send Flowers for Clockhammer Theatre last year. What was the process for you writing that play? Um, and what was the response to it like? And was it... Really, what, go on. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, it was really sort of interesting experience in that um, it was a play that I'd written quite a few years before mm. and I'd sort of just put in a drawer somewhere and sort of forgotten about a little bit um, and I submitted it to Clock Tower who wanted to do it which was great and then we went through like over a year of sort of redrafting and, and bits and pieces so we have a couple we had a couple of read-throughs um, and then I go away and do some more work on it which was really good because I think I got some distance from it and then I got back to coming back and rework it and sort of, you know, work with actors and do some really good, like, workshopping mm. on it and things like that, which was a great process to be part of and I think was a new process for Clock Tower as well, which I think hopefully was really good for them to see how that works in terms of, you know, working with writers and everything. Um, and the response was really great. Um, I was really overwhelmed by, like, how people responded to it and how it kind of connected with people and I got so many so many messages and I always say in a really cliche way that if anything I write connects with like one person then I've done my job yeah. like that's all I need to do um and to have like I had a lot of messages like you know individually from people saying it really connected with an experience they'd had or it just really moved them and things like that and I just think that was worth it no matter what else happens with that you know with that play and you know whether reviewers liked it or not doesn't matter because you know <laughs> you know this is gonna sound really bad i saw people crying at it and that means more than like what any you know ticket sales or anything like that all of that kind of stuff crying in a good way so. um but it was a really great experience and we also got to take it out of cardiff so we went mm. up to older um in Man near manchester and also we got to take it to wolverhampton which is like my home theater away from home because i work there yeah. quite often and for me, that was really special to like take it home to what I call my theatre family in Wolverhampton yeah. as well and have them see the play. So that was really, that was the sort of most special thing that I think Clock Tower did for me is like let me take it to somewhere that meant a lot as well. So yeah, yeah it was a really great uh, And was the response different in Cardiff to Wolverhampton? Um, yeah, it was. It was a weird sort of the, the second night in Cardiff that we did, like, was staying with me for a long time because it was absolutely packed out at the gate. Um, and there was just sort of like, it, you know, when you feel like an audience has really gone with you on the yeah. play and they're really in it. 
um, that's definitely what that second night felt like. It just felt like that thing where a whole audience is connecting and really invested in what what you're doing, and that knowing how hard the team worked on it as well and how hard the actors worked on it that felt like a real sort of reward for them in a way to see them getting the recognition from the audience because that's why we do it right you know it's definitely to connect with people in that room and that felt like you know a really great night for that so i think that will definitely stay with me for a while and for people who maybe didn't get to see the play um, can you talk a bit about what it's about uh, and how you, why you decided to write it, I guess? Yeah, so the play is, um, oh, I would say, like, my jokey response is, is it's my cake and death play. <laughs> um, it's a play about uh, a group of people who are, like, dealing with facing sort of um, loss in different ways mm-hmm. um, and the way that they sort of connect with each other over that. So you've got a character who is dying of cancer you've got a character who's losing a parent to cancer and they and then you've got um another character who's kind of connected to both of them and it's about how they sort of connect and talk about grieving and talk about loss and all of these things but not in a like really sentimental way in quite a dark comedy kind of way (laughs) and kind of a a sometimes very unhealthy coping mechanisms way but i think that's what people liked about it as well in that it was quite honest and it didn't try to sugarcoat things and like they do things to each other that are not particularly nice sometimes like they don't treat each other very well but it's kind of it it's very human in that way and you know it kind of all works out in the end Mm. that they get to have a resolution of things and i think that's what people connected with as well is the idea that it's quite an honest play in that sense about how people behave and all of that which we don't see very much of in terms of the subject matter no, like everything I'd ever read about, like if it's a like cancer play or like yeah. a death play or something like that, was all very like saccharine and sugar coated and like as if everyone has these big like deathbed confessions that are super <laughs> dramatic and all of that. Like anything you watch on like soaps and TV, and yeah. I'm like, that's fine, but actually, like people can be really mean when they're hurting and really like yeah. treat each other really badly. Um, and they can do stupid things. They, in the case of this play, they like have sex with inappropriate people and like eat a lot of cake and things like that. Um, and I just wanted to have someone like have some characters talking about that and being really honest about it. Um, and equally, like when the character who who is dying in it, it's just kind of like, yeah, it's really shit that I'm dying and I'm not happy about it. And I just wanted a character yeah, to which, say that. On yeah, stage. absolutely, because. <laughs> People have their free conception, I, I don't know, of like, people are just taking it and going all well or whatever, but obviously, shit, so why wouldn't, why wouldn't they be like that, and why, why shouldn't we see that as a point of view on stage? Exactly, and it was, you know, it was all of those things that, and yes, I, I, you know, I wrote it to be funny as well because I didn't want it to be a really depressing, you know, even more depressing night in the theatre. Um, but also, the, like, people are weird and funny, and they say stupid things, and I quite like that. That's why I like writing about people. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm going to move on slightly um, to ask you about what attracted you to the more academic side of theatre. You still there? I think you're... Sure. Um, 
I think because I've just always been naturally academic and like I said I'm like I'm not a performer I'm not mm. you know I've never been drawn to that side of the work I have performed and it, it, it's best most of it because it's best left un, unspoken about um yeah so I'm not a performer and I've always had an interest in, in theatre but knowing I shouldn't be on stage probably right. Um, but I've equally got a brain that like just wants to analyse things and like pick things apart <laughs> in a good way. Yeah. Um, and kind of, I don't know, I guess just being really nerdy about things <laughs> is, is how to best describe yeah. it. Um, and a weird way of like wanting to turn things I'm really passionate about into something more than I should, maybe. Um, yeah. And I kind of, I'd always had in the back of my mind that I wanted to do a PhD I wanted to basically go as far as I could in school like that was how I kind of yeah. saw it like can I take it to the absolute limits um turns out I could um and I kind of took a few years off before I committed to that and everything but it was also something that just wouldn't go away the idea of both kind of wanting to do something in research and wanting to do that side of things and also the topic that I picked so I looked at representations of the AIDS crisis through theatre ultimately but also okay. culture more widely and I just sort of kept this interest in it and it was just a thing that wouldn't go away in terms of what I read about it sounds a weird thing to say what I enjoyed reading about given it's a you know, slightly dark mm. topic um, but the plays that I wrote about I was still really passionate about so I just felt like I wouldn't be happy until I'd like taken that as far as I could uh, and uh, what level did you start thinking about this topic was it at uh, um, I've, I've got an epic through line of my undergrad dissertation go on, is go on. Um, so I wrote on Jonathan Larson's Rent for my undergrad dissertation yeah. um, and then I wrote about Angels in America for my master's dissertation because there happened to be a production of it on when I was doing my master's um, and then for my PhD I did basically a comparative case study of both of those pieces of work in mm. the broader context of like AIDS theatre or the AIDS crisis um, so I you know all told was writing stuff on them for what nearly 10 years because of the gap in between um, and then I still carried on for another five years or more afterwards. And, and were you still finding things, were you still making discoveries about the play? Oh, yeah, 100%. Like, um, there's so much, I mean, particularly with Angels in America, because it's such a vast, mm. dense play, there's so much that I still could talk about. I mean, I was teaching um, playwriting students just last night, and I was using it as an example, and I was still going, oh, yes, and then there's this, and then there's this, because there's just so much richness in it. But equally, with every new production, you know, there's a new production of Rent, Touchwood, happening in Manchester soon. Um, there's something else that comes out of it and you learn something else. And also, I'm really interested in, like, audiences and how they respond mm. to these pieces over the years. So, you know, I look at my, you know, younger friends now who've never seen Rent before and I kind of go, oh, you're going to discover that for the first time and what's your reaction going to be? So there's so much still to, like, unpick on them. And is it about reading around the plays and the historical and social context that they exist yeah. within. 
absolutely so i've got it's really unfortunate at the minute i've got like a lot of like information in my head about like pandemics and virology and like politics around um how governments respond to pandemics and all of that and it's been like i joke about it but it's also been really difficult in 2020 having this history in my head and going i've seen particularly america i've seen america go through this before i've seen america mess this up before um, but for me, because I came from a history background as well, mm-hmm. it's always been about the context in which these plays are performed. And so why people wrote them, why theatres put them on and like what they mean in different um, historical periods and all of that. So we're, we're getting um, The Normal Heart performed at the National Theatre next year. They've just announced it, yeah. which is another AIDS play. And that's going to have such a different like impact now based on a year of you know a new virus and a new sort of yeah. set of fears around all of that. Do you think maybe because it largely affected LGBT people that most people don't have knowledge of what the true effect of the AIDS crisis? Maybe people in my age don't have a true. Um, knowledge of how vast it was and maybe don't see it as the event oh, not it's not the event really but don't see it for what it was if you know what I mean does that make sense maybe under yeah. undermine it yeah totally and the idea that um there's sort of a perception of as well that the impact like it's all sort of filed away neatly and it's done with and, and all of that yeah um, and in a way it is in terms of like our medication for HIV is so good now that people can live you know normal lives and all of that loads of people who were diagnosed even you know 20 years ago are living really healthy lives and are, you know are going to continue to do that but there's also people who are still alive today who lost people in the AIDS crisis and I think we forget that you know there's you know men who are in their 50s or 60s now who lost their partners when they were in their 20s and sort of we forget how recent some of that was um and i think we also forget how recent like a lot of the government legislation the government lack of response and all that was in terms of the prejudice around that in terms of you know the massively homophobic way that you know margaret thatcher responded or mm-hmm. ronald reagan re- responded and i think it's really easy because hiv is a manageable condition now to think it's all stuff that's in the past when actually sort of the impact is, is still there um and just also that just a kind of collective like grief from a community who lost so many mm-hmm. people not that long ago is a really important thing. And I think that's why it's important that we still look at the plays or the films or the books and stuff yeah. like that of that era as well. And um, what um, what place do you think that? academia and analytics has in we've touched on this briefly but what place do you think that it has in the theatre industry more generally um i think it's really important that we have people talking about it in sort of an academic way and an analytical way i think partly because by its nature, theatre obviously is always temporary, like it happens and it's gone and yeah. it's, it's only been there for like a moment. In a way, I think it's that's something I learned from working on stuff from the like 80s and 90s as well, is it's so easy to lose the records of what, what was performed and what was said and all of those things. 
So I think as academics, part of our responsibility is like similar to an archive, an archivist's responsibility, and that's keeping a record of it, talking about yeah. why it was important, but also showing like putting it out there so that people who didn't experience it in the room know that it happened as well. So I can write about angels in America from the 90s and share some of that with people who couldn't have been there because they weren't born yet and things like that. Um, and I think it also, there's a lot of really great theatre sort of makers who engage with the academic side because it makes them better theatre makers, if that makes sense. So yeah. it sort of informs the way they're going to make work going forward. And, you know, I don't think that you should necessarily be thinking like an academic to direct a play but equally if a director reads like academic analysis of things it might broaden how they see their work fitting into like mm. culture as a whole or the social responsibility of what they're doing and, and all of those things um i guess again we've seen a lot this year of like around sort of social justice movements mm. as well and all that kind of stuff and i think if academics can sort of help people to frame how theater fits into those things it might help make the work we make better as well yeah i know what you're saying but would you say there's a danger if if say a director is reading too much into the analytics or the social context of the work they're going to uh, direct that the meaning or the central ideas of the play could be lost or is yeah absolutely yeah, there's always a danger of like overcomplicating like what we do and kind of ultimately it should rest on like the writer's words, the character's motivations, all of those things. And there's sort of, you know, there's a point at which you can over research. And I say this to writing students I work with as well. Like you can, it's good to do research and to know all of this information but equally you can take that too far and ultimately you should be going more on like instinct and people and, and all of yeah. those things. So it's kind of like it's useful, but also maybe it's a bit of a separate world at some point as well. Mm. There is that divide though, and it's about, from what you're saying, how they, how they use each other and how, how they can take bits from either side of that divide. To, and it doesn't have to be this definite border between them, is what I've got from what you're saying. Yeah, definitely. And I think it's, you know, there's, there's more of a tradition in um, American theatre of using like what they call a production dramaturg, which helps them to sort of do the research around a piece. Mm -hmm. And I think maybe having that sort of middleman person is a useful way of doing it is like having someone feed your director and your cast like useful bits of research and maybe the academic stuff but also keeping that distance and letting them just do the work in the room and have you know the academics and the critics and whatever talk about it afterwards and keep that a yeah. little bit separate i i'd like to ask you about the 2017 national theater national theater production that's better <laughs> angels in America what was your role in this production and how was that experience for you um it was honestly I always say it's, it was a career changing and possibly life changing moment for me um 
I very cheekily emailed um, Marianne Elliott and said, I know lots about this show, show can I come and help you? Um, which is hilarious now that I look back on it. Was again, that oh literally God. how it happened? Literally. So, um, for context, I was, I'd finished my PhD, I was working, I was in a job that I really hated, it was a very depressing time, and I heard that this production was happening, and... I was really depressed about it, if I'm honest, because I was like, I've done all this work on this play and mm. like it's going to happen and I'm just going to go and watch it. I, I don't know, it just felt really depressing at the time because I felt really disconnected from it. Um, and a good friend of mine said to me, well, why don't you email them and say that you've got a PhD in this play? Like, what's the worst that could happen? And she literally found me Marianne Elliott's agent like details and went, here's the email, like just email and say that you know a lot about this play and what you've done uh, and so I did and then I yeah. heard back from her assistant director who I then met with and then I met with Marianne and basically my role with her was um, just talking about the play like we had a couple of a number of conversations where she just had questions about the play um, the great I think the greatest compliment she gave me was that I explained it really clearly and that I explained it better than Tony did meaning Tony Krishna yeah. which um, is not hard because he's a man who goes off on many a tangent right. and like his play um so yeah I, you know, I talked through with Marianne about that um the first time I met her she asked me if I'd write something for their program which was like incredible yeah. um so I wrote an essay for the program and then I worked with the National Theatre and ran some education stuff for them as well so I sort of ran um workshops and, and stuff mm. like that and just sort of was sort of peripherally <laughs> connected to this production which was absolutely a dream come true um and just massively changed what I was doing because it gave me the confidence to say I can do things I can be part of theatre and also I know stuff about this play I know stuff um, about this world and I can be I can find ways to be useful and also bridge that gap between the two worlds in a, in a useful way um, and yeah it was just a really I think for me as well having done all the research previously and um, felt connected to the play in a different way which felt really important for me at that point as well the only kind of validated everything that you've been doing over the previous previous years i guess yeah absolutely it just made it feel like oh it was all sort of worth worth doing not that it wasn't anyway but it felt like a nice like bit of punctuation on what i'd done yeah. to make it feel like it was it was something i could share with people as well mm. Uh, I want to talk about the book next. So you're writing a book on Angels in America. Uh, Has it been published yet? Or when's it been published? Um, It's gone to the publishers now. So I've completed the first draft of it, and it's with the publishers. I'm anxiously awaiting some (laughs) kind of feedback on it. Um, It's been a hell of a journey, if I'm honest. Like, I got the book contract like over two years ago now and then life has got in the way and all of that kind of yeah. stuff um several crises of confidence in terms of writing it as well um and then finally this year because i had a lot of time because <laughs> we've all just been at home for however many months um i finally got the sort of space and time to finish writing it which was both it's both been one of the best experiences I've ever had and also the worst in that it's kind of you never stop second guessing um I had some like pretty horrific experiences in academia that really knocked my confidence as well so um I am not the most confident in my writing even though I know that I know 
this play inside out and back to front. I still worry. Mm. Um, but it's also been really lovely to be able to like immerse myself back in the play and kind of revisit it after a little bit of time away and get like a fresh perspective. Um, and I think I just enjoyed being able to sort of sit with those characters again and think about what this play means and think about how that's changed mm. over the years and things like that. Um, and I think just in terms of like new things I've discovered, I think the argument I'm making in the book about the importance of the play has shifted a little bit, which might be a 2020 thing. It might be a, you know, new virus out there thing. And it might just be sort of continuing to like sit and grow with this play and see what it, what it means to people, um, which is, and there's never enough words to talk about it. <laughs> I could write a set. Yeah. I, I, I genuinely, while I've been writing it, I've gone, that's not this book. Maybe it's another book. And like, there's just so much you can write about this play, which is both wonderful and in incredibly irritating at the same time. Could, could you see yourself writing another book about it? it there, is, there, are, there are things that I have to say that don't fit into like the framework of this right. play in this book. Um, might not be an entire book, but equally like I kind of go, I went, oh, there's this and this and this that aren't there. But since handing in that book, I've also come up with two new book ideas and two new book proposals for completely separate things. Wow. So um, again, it's like it's keeping my mind busy more than anything else. But there's certainly I'm I've not run out of things to say about Angels in America. Put it that way. And um, you said that's only the first draft. So you might have the opportunity to put stuff into the second, third, fourth draft. Uh, how, how are you feeling about that drafting process? Um, in terms of the, sort of the draft going off, it was sort of just relief that I mm. finished it in some format. Like, if nothing else, I can say it's done yeah. in one sense, like I got to the finish line of it. I'm really nervous about because we get peer-reviewed in academic books, so basically okay. it's now with other academics who will tell me what's wrong with it. Um, and I'm really nervous about that. But equally, um, a good friend of mine um, who's an academic just keeps telling me that I need to have the confidence that I'm an expert in this and keep reminding yeah. myself that I'm an expert in this um, and to sort of, you know, hold my ground a little bit on it. So I'm... I'm excited, I'm sort of a little bit excited in terms of I think it might actually nearly be over and I might actually get to the end of it, um, but I'm also nervous to sort of know what other work I've got to do next, mm. but hopefully next year it will be out. Fingers crossed. Yes. <laughs> but you're working with the chairman at the moment as well, aren't you? You're, um creating an audio drama called Heart of Cardiff LGBTQ Stories. W what's that been like? Because did it start in lockdown? Yeah, so basically the Sherman this year, um, when they knew they couldn't do an autumn season, when they knew they'd be closed, you know, until yeah. spring next year, decided to work on some audio dramas, basically, or audio productions. Um, which I think is just such a really cool idea and a really like innovative way of approaching it. Um, and they also just opened it out to sort of people to apply. So oh. I pitched this idea of um, an audio documentary, essentially, where we talk to members of the LGBTQ plus community, get their stories and sort of pull them together in some kind of documentary about 
what they feel about Cardiff, what they feel about identity, mm. like basically what anyone wanted to bring me. Um, yeah. It's been really good as well in terms of the way we've worked. So I'm um, working with Joe Murphy, who is directing my piece, which is a bit of a weird one to direct because it's a documentary one and it's more about editing mm. and stuff like that. But actually what he's helped do is like shape what we're going to talk about and it's become more as well about integrating my own story so um we talked about originally you know perhaps joe interviewing me and using that but what i'm doing now is writing my own narrative to sort of tie other stories together and hoping that we come up with something interesting that people want to listen to about the community uh, and how do you feel about putting yourself out there and telling your story um really it's been a lot harder than i thought it would be to write it so i you know i'm really open about you know about my sexuality about my identity all of those things and i think but it's one thing to be generally open with that and another to like write it down and tell it and again like i told versions of it like my life story as we all have through fictional characters before yeah but i've never had to like literally just and and because i've got to read it as well because i'm going to be reading it in the in the audio drama it's that thought of going I have to say this out loud that sort of when you're writing that makes you second guess it a bit I think um but I have been like really well supported by the Sherman and by Joe and you know in terms of both dramaturgy of it and shaping it but also just like feeling like it's sort of a safe way to write it and I'm supported in that way as is everybody else who's contributed which has been a really lovely experience because if you've got the environment in which you can do that with supportive people around you, I bet it's easier to to not pour it out, but to put it down on paper and to to feel that you're giving this material to people who you trust. Absolutely, and it's kind of you know we've surrounded the piece with sort of LGBT plus people who are working on it as well, which has felt really Mm. important um, to feel supported in that way. And that anyone who's like coming and giving an interview can feel supportive as well. Um, But also just having that trust with the people you're working with to kind of go, I know that I've written some stuff down in a draft, but if I then turned around to, to Joe and was like, actually, no, we can't do that. I just can't say it then it wouldn't be an issue and we'd find another way to say it and we'd find another yeah. way around it and, and all of those kinds of things. And that, you know, what Joe wants and what I want is the same thing, which is to tell stories about the community and to give people a chance to feel represented and feel seen and all of those things, which makes it much easier even when it's a scary thing to write. Yeah. Uh, and working with Joe, have you, have you enjoyed that creative relationship? Yeah, it's been really, really lovely. And I was lucky that um, I met him and chatted to him a couple of times pre, you know, pre-lockdown and all of that, um, which felt like a really lovely thing to have the Sherman feel really open and really like yeah. their new artistic director was really interested in the writers who were working here and things like that. Um, and he's just like a really lovely guy, which absolutely helps as well. Um, but it just feels like this project as well as kind of thrown the doors of the Sherman open a little bit even though it's you know even though it's closed and that there's a great relationship there sort of creatively going forward and I've just felt like really supported by them and really like um you know they're really interested in creating something new because this is very different to even the other audio dramas that they're they're 
producing um, and that feels really exciting as well to be part of that are there bits of it that are verbatim, or is it, have you used verbatim at all in the audio diary? Um, so it's just, it's going to be the clips of the interviews of the people right. who've spoken to, so it's going to be their own voices, right. and then it's going to be script, the only bit that's scripted is my part of it, so I'm sort of tying it together by talking it through. And then everyone else is, is kind of either interviews that we've had as a conversation yeah. or people have sort of sent me little soundbite recordings in answer to questions that I've sent them, which has given us like a really varied, interesting set of stories. And we're still collecting a few more in the next week or so as well, which is pretty cool. And if people want to listen to it, how can they do that? Um, it's going to be put out on uh, via the Sherman uh, Theatre's website and um, I think it's the middle of November mine is but there's the Heart of Cardiff season is already running so every other week there's a new audio drama um, on the Sherman Theatre's sort of website, social media and all of that that you can listen to. Fantastic. The last thing I'm going to ask you Emily is what advice would you give to someone who is just starting out in the industry at this very difficult time for for artists who are just starting out in their careers? Um, oh, it's, it's always a difficult one at the best of times, that one. But I think two things. One is finding your community and finding the people that you want to make work with. So, like, don't try and force yourself to hang out with the cool kids just because you think they're the cool kids right find the people you can work with best and make the best work with and that you feel comfortable with as a person as well because there's no point trying to force it and you'll just be unhappy and Mm. you know life's too short for that definitely um and also a great piece of advice that i'm going to paraphrase that i stumbled across yesterday as a reminder um is like always make the thing that you want to make like don't try and make the thing you think you should make if that makes sense so if you're a writer if you're a performer just go towards the things that make you excited because you'll do better work um and i think that is one of the best pieces of advice i've sort of stumbled across as, as opposed to writing for what you think theatres will want you know exactly. yeah i think i spent too long worrying that I wasn't the right sort of writer for places and trying to make myself mm. that person when actually I'm never going to write good work that way I'm only going to write the good work if it's the stuff that I'm passionate about or the stuff that is just naturally you know how I write I can't make myself you know into somebody else that I'm not so mm. there's no point wasting a lot of valuable energy doing that and I think and also, if you're excited about something or passionate about something, it shows in the work, ultimately, mm-hmm. and someone somewhere will also be excited about that, and you will find those people. Um, and I think that's the best advice I can do, give anyone as well, is like find the people who are excited by the things that you're excited by. Thank you so much. It's been fun talking Thank to you. you. <laughs> um, and I'll catch you on the next episode of In Lockdown With, where my guest will be. Guy O'Donnell. So I shall see you then. Thank you. Yay. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode of In Lockdown With. The podcast is written, produced, and curated by me, Kieran Fitzgerald.
Thank you to all my guests for taking the time to appear on the show. If you enjoyed this episode of In Lockdown With, please consider liking or subscribing on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And I'll see you next time for another interview.